those types of things are, are very challenging, I think, in the aggregate, because Canada was the it country, Toronto was the it city, and we're no longer there. We need to get back to that. And I do think that we can, but it's going to take that kind of committed, strategic, visionary leadership at all levels of government, but also in society, in the community. Because again, when you keep taxing the crap out of people and making it difficult, they become less philanthropic and they become less oriented towards risk and venture investing. Hello, welcome to a new episode of Strictly Money, your go-to source for managing your personal finances. I'm Sejal Patel. In today's show, we are diving into innovation, fintech innovation, and how it is transforming the financial well-being of millions of Canadians. You see, technologies like artificial intelligence is no doubt disrupting the financial industry. And I personally think it is going to help millions of Canadians invest better and manage their money better. You are in for a treat because joining me today is Joe Kahneman. Joe is an icon in the financial services industry. He has built incredibly successful asset management firms and sold them, and he now invests in a number of fintech disruptors, many of those you are going to recognize. So without further ado, Joe Kahneman. Hi, Joe. Thanks for coming on Strictly Money. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> now, Joe, I am, I'm thrilled to have you on. You don't know this, but I have been following your career for a very long time. You are someone that I look up to. This is going back to the mid-90s when I first started in the financial advisory space. I was at Burns Fry, and so many of the advisors that I was working with looked up to you and, and said you were the person who got the asset management space, even though I, I left. And, you know, I went into business journalism and I was in Asia for a number of years. I've been I've been following your career. So so welcome to the show. I'm really glad to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Now, um, you have spent decades building the asset management space and, and now you're investing in in a number of companies, tech companies, but particular fintech companies. So you're certainly not slowing down. What are, what are you up to these days? I'm guiding a number of tech CEOs, mostly fintech. So when I retired for the first time, I had a little extra time on my hands. I ended up being on nine different boards, which was arguably way too many. And part of that became people would call me and ask me for advice on asset management, but also disruption to asset management, disruption to financial services in general, disruption to banking and insurance. And so I think the reason they called me was having had a few startup successes myself, I would identify with what they were going through, but I'd also be able to understand the tech they were using and how and why they were trying to shift the, the landscape for consumers in Canada. In the earliest of days, uh, before I came out of retirement to turn around Children's Aid and Next Canada, it was companies like well, Simple and Coho and Borowell, and I helped them until they didn't need me to help them. And 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 now it's Cap Intel, Homewise, Uset Insurance, Tip Tap Pay, Aerialytics AI. So essentially, people were coming to me as an entrepreneur, as somebody who understood the financial services industry in aggregate, which is massive, but then 
uh, drilling down into various verticals within financial services and, and, you know, where could I offer my insight or advice? Where could I offer access to uh, decision makers or in some cases capital? And on, on the rarest of occasions, I would agree to come on as either an advisory board member or as a personal advisor to the founder slash CEO. So right now I have five of those companies. I had six. Uh, one of them got sold to Quest Trade recently, which was excellent for everybody. You know, I've had a, a very long history of working with founders and, and, you know, basically tech CEOs who are in their way changing the world for the better. And, and that's what I love most about uh, the position that I'm in is I'm, I'm helping and I'm guiding and I'm advising people who have this virtuous notion that they're going to change the world and make the world a better place. Well, well, simple, certainly a, a disruptor, Joe. One of the companies I know you, you just mentioned at Cap Intel, I'm, I'm really interested in hearing a little bit more about this. This is a digital software company and it, and it does help investment advisors create financial plans. So, you know, as you know, I was just speaking to you earlier about being at, at Asante. So I used to work with these financial planning softwares, you know, back then it was Navaplan, but we have a number of them out there. How is this program different? It, it, it makes it so much easier and it allows both sides. It allows the asset manager to have access to the information, it allows the advisor to have access to the information so that in aggregate, what James and his team are doing is providing all of this intelligence to the advisor to give them or empower them to have a better, more productive relationship with the client, the investor. And that's really what struck me um, about Cap Intel is it was taking the information that was necessary to do a great job to provide great advice to a client and bring all those tools in the most thoughtful, most efficient manner. James has proved that model out very, very successfully. Uh, not only has he succeeded in um, attracting massive numbers of clients here in Canada on the asset management side and on the dealership side, but certainly now in the United States. And, and I think there's more to come. And he's, he's not only attracting great clients, he's attracting great capital. Uh, which is really important because you can have a great idea. And if you don't have the, the resources to you know, really get the traction that you need, um, that's really problematic, especially in, in these challenging times. So um, he's been able to do all of the above. So he, he's, he's basically taking that service, that model, and empowering the investment advisor to play at the top of their game which is, you know, to the benefit of all clients, everyone. Yeah, something you also mentioned, um, Joe, is that the insurance space is ripe for disruption. I, I couldn't agree um, uh, more. I, I worked at Manulife for, for a couple of years. Uh, walk us through your thoughts on that. Again, it's a very, listen, it's a good business, but it's archaic. And, you know, when you have, you know, kind of a an old line business where everything is very manual, and even though they're evolving their model to be more consultative or evolved or advanced in dealing with the end client, the, the whole model of selling insurance is still, you know, in my mind, you know, quite archaic and broken. And the comp model is, is really quite egregious. And so in my mind, 
it, it changes. And they have a very, very great business model, which includes a very powerful business lobby with the government. Um, so it's not easy to change how they do business. It's very opaque so and, and very difficult to understand the jargon and how business gets done. So that gives them a, a unique position in the marketplace. But that said, that's where a disruptor can come along and really change the way business is done to disintermediate the way things have been done in the past and make it a little bit more approachable for the end consumer or corporate client. And so that's where I think the thin edge of the wedge is. And and that's where when companies come to me as it pertains to insurance, if I see them being able to bring a service or support or something that makes that relationship easier, more cost competitive, a little bit more empowering for the consumer. That's what really gets me excited. And I think that's going to happen. And they're listen, they're going to fight it. I would too. If I were the CEO of any of those big insurance companies, I'd be, you know, let's put this off as far into the future as we possibly can. But I think the future is coming now. And it's coming not just in Canada, but in, in North America, in the UK. And so I think we're going to see technologies coming onshore into Canada that exist in other markets and then existing technologies here in Canada, like USET, which is one of the ones that I'm helping, because I think they're just doing business differently. And so if you can make it easier, more competitive for the investor and the consumer, then you've got a winning uh, formula. Well, I can tell you, I'd love to see something a lot more easier. I mean, you know, I educate a lot of people on on all aspects of financial planning, Joe, and, and insurance is the one that's incredibly complicated. I mean, most people I talk to just, they don't get it. Well, I mean, our whole industry for the entire, I mean, I hate to say it, the decades that I've been involved, we have a jargon, right? We have a language that is unique to financial services and and, and that's asset management, that's in, in investment advice. It's also insurance. And it's that terminology and the opaque nature of how businesses operate that make it really difficult for the end consumer to really understand what the benefits are to them. And and, and sometimes we do it not intentionally to mislead, but because it's hard to distill it down into the simplest terms, or we don't try too hard because you know what? The models work, why why, mess with it? So do I think that's gonna change? Yes. Do I think it's starting to change now? Yes. And it's people like you and, and David Chilton and other authors and writers and, and journalists out there who are saying, you know what, this has got to be easier. And we need to bring this to the average Canadian family in a way that it's, it's consumable and, and they understand it. And, you know, the company I mentioned earlier, equally a disruptor but not seen as one, is Questrade. I mean, everything they touch, they disrupt. And they're doing a good job at it. So am I impressed with what they're doing? Absolutely. Am I impressed with the disruption and disruptability of the markets by the, the Wealth Simples and the co-hosts? Absolutely. So, you know, is, is, is James and Cap Intel disrupting Morningstar? Absolutely. So I, I honor and, and support that because, you know what, sometimes disruption is what's necessary to get us to the next stage of the life cycle of financial services and offer the products more competitively to everybody. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think um, Coho is going to be really interesting now that, uh, you know, they're they're getting closer to, to becoming a bank. Um, 
Joe, when you invest in a in a fintech startup, what do you look for? There are a lot of people out there who have a spray and pray mentality. And so they'll invest in 30, 40, 50 companies with a small amount of money. For me, that doesn't work. And I'm really trying to identify great leadership. Everything in my life has really revolved around identifying truly talented, visionary leaders who have incredible integrity. So I'm really looking for character. I'm looking for integrity. I'm looking for their values. So it's the CEO, or if there's multiple founders, the co-founders and and who they are as people. Then I'm looking for the team. I, I, I want to know that it's not just that individual, that they have a really talented leadership team. A's hire A's. I'm looking for A's. I don't want B's. B's hire C's and D's. I've seen enough of that to know that that usually ends poorly. So I'm looking for talented leadership teams. If I can find all of those elements, I'm looking for a really solid cap table. I want smart money. People that are investors that understand the sector, they understand the business model. They're going to stick with the company through all um, times in the in the life cycle of the business. Um, and I'm also looking in that founder group that they're not going to cut and run when stuff hits the fan. So I need to know that these founders and their teams are resilient, that they respect and, and, and support and really value the capital that they've raised. I, I, you know, I've seen a lot of founders go out there and raise money and spend it just because it's other people's money, not respecting the fact that this is really hard-earned capital and people are betting on their um, character and, and, and their vision and they're, they're going to get it done. And so that's really served me. Where there's an 80 to 85% failure rate um, in, in venture capital, I have like an 80% success rate. And the reason is because I really try really hard to identify those great leaders who embody the characteristics that I just talked about. I think you hit it on the nail, Joe. You know, people and culture, I think, is everything. And, and if you have good people, um, you can you have a much, much greater chance of success. Uh, we're, we have a lot more to talk about, but um, we're going to take a pause, Joe, and hear from our sponsors, BMO ETFs, whom without I could not be doing this uh, podcast. So we'll take a break and we'll come right back. Are you looking to enhance the level of cash flow from your investments? BMO ETFs has you covered with their Covered Call ETFs. These ETFs generate cash flow from two sources, the dividend yield from the underlying securities and the premium generated from selling the call options. BMO Covered Call ETFs strike a balance between generating cash flow and participating in the growth of rising markets with your experienced portfolio management team and effective strategy with over 10 years of history. BMO ETFs is the largest covered call ETF provider in Canada, covering 13 covered call ETFs across a range of strategies across regions, countries, and sectors. Visit BMOETFs.com to learn more. Please read the ETF facts or prospectus of the BMO ETFs before investing. Welcome back. I'm here with Joe Canavan. Um, Joe, just before the uh, the break, we were talking about what you look for in fintech and and how leadership and, and the values that they carry are really important. I want to get your thoughts on the innovation space in Canada and whether anything concerns you. Oh, there's a lot that concerns me. There was a lot that excited me for a period of time. 
when I got involved, I was still fixing a company that was in turnaround mode called Asante Wealth Management. And, and a group of people came to see me from Next Canada. They were called Next 36 at the time. And they said, would you vet our pitch deck? And to be honest, I didn't do a great job of vetting it other than saying to the, the team that I loved it and it was an idea whose time had come. And, and their model was, we're going to educate. We're going to bring in profs from Harvard and Stanford and Toronto and Waterloo, and we're going to educate young entrepreneurs. We're going to bring in mentors to mentor them. We're going to give them access to structuring like EY, Oslers for, for legal work, and, and really help take an idea and package it up and launch these companies. And when I saw this, I, I knew from my own personal experience, there wasn't an angel investing network in Canada at, at that time. There wasn't a venture network in Canada at that time. So I believe that this was going to be massively successful and have a huge impact and ripple effect on our country. And so I think after my enthusiasm, uh, they came back to me six months later and said, well, you liked it more than anybody. Do you want to be on the board? And I said, yes. And, and then I became a donor and, and then I became a mentor to some of the startups. And I fell in love with the whole, the whole idea of venture and angel investing in Canada. And it felt really good to me because I was fortunate to have people invest in me when I was building my companies. Um, they weren't angels. They were like banks and people like that. Uh, but they still did it. And I was eternally grateful to them for doing so. So what excites me and excited me is there have been so many more success stories born in the last 15 years since Next Canada and then uh, Creative Destruction Lab and the Vector Institute and Velocity. All these accelerators and incubators have brought more companies up to market and made them available. And 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 you've got uh, angel investors, VCs that have this virtuous aspect to them. So some of the companies that I've invested in that have exited would be like a layer six, two incredibly bright, talented founders who've done great things, not only in layer six, got bought out by TD Bank, then Jordan Jacobs went on and built Radical Ventures, which is the number one AI venture fund in the world. And then Tommy Putin and the other co-founder has now gone off and built Signal One, which is going to digitize and, and bring AI into all uh, the hospital networks. And so let's just say that they not only did that, but they're also investing in other companies. They helped start the Vector Institute. And you see that virtuosity. Um, we talked earlier about Michael um, at, at uh, Well Simple. Michael called me about another venture that he was starting called Simple Ventures. And what they're going to do is they're going to attract into Canada a number of businesses that exist and are succeeding elsewhere in the world and bring them to Canadians. They don't exist here. And I thought that was a genius idea. So it's a virtuous cycle where you're trying to take um, the capital that you've raised and the success that you've had with your exit and invest back into other companies. So that period from 2010 to 2019 was coming along beautifully. Angel investing started in earnest. Uh, venture capital started to pop up. You know, there were a couple players around like Georgian uh, Capital, which was great, but there was really only one or two. And so now there's a number. And in 2015, 16, after CDL got launched and a few others, 
you started to see this all taking shape. And there was a period when we had great vision from Minister Baines when he was the uh, minister that there was support for technology, for innovation, for R&D. And that was continuing in 17, 18, 19. But We've now gone and and taxed ourselves into oblivion. We've made it less palatable for businesses to start here. It's no longer as tech-friendly, innovation-friendly, entrepreneur-friendly than it was. We were attracting people into our country that had those capabilities, that had those skill sets. We're no longer attracting those same people. We're more going broad brush. And so it's not strategic. So those are the things that worry me. So was I excited? I was very excited about the way that we were moving, the direction we were going in, and the number of startups. And and, and again, the brilliant young people being educated and graduated out of some of our best engineering schools, like STEM-related schools. That's starting, to, that's not starting, it's diminishing. It's already diminished. So that worries me a lot because we were on a really good trajectory and uh, we've kind of effed it up, to be honest. Yeah. And, and it's it's interesting that you, that you say this because I, I have this conversation quite often, Joe, and, and I said, I don't think talent is necessarily the problem. I, I actually think we have a lot of talent here, but the impetus for them to to stay perhaps in Canada and, and have their ideas embraced is in here. It, do you think it's a, it's a capital problem or do you think it's a regulatory problem? Or the regulatory problem is is creating the capital problem. Not to be too political, but I think it's a political problem. You know, political equals regulatory, regulatory equals incentives, and people act in line with their incentives. And it's less and less attractive for entrepreneurs to begin in Canada or stay. And it's less and less attractive for capital to come into the market and make those huge, because it's a giant risk. If there's an 80% failure rate, how are you encouraging people to take that risk when you're taxing them into oblivion? I mean, we're over 50% in, in, in taxes now. And every time I turn around, there's a new way that they're trying to put a roadblock up to make it you know, less attractive for people to take that kind of risk. So it's, it's less attractive for people to leave major institutions and take a great idea and launch it into a company. It's less attractive for that kid that graduated out of Queens or Waterloo or Toronto or UBC to, to, to go and start their company here versus Austin or Nashville or any of those new startup hotbeds. I worry about that. And we're making it less and less attractive for risk-taking, you know, people who've had those good exits to do that virtuosity of investing back into the ecosystem. Um, it's happening a little bit less. And, and more of the discussions I'm having of late are people kind of thinking, you know, young people who are exiting the country and people whose capital, they're just like, yeah, I'm just going to put it into this investment over here uh, because it's no longer the same financial benefit or upside to me uh, to to be that risk-taking uh, venture investor. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I can tell you my, my niece graduated from University of Waterloo and and when she had to make the decision of staying here in Canada or going to the U.S., she picked the U.S., she said they're just more innovative. I just had a young person in my office two weeks ago who had moved here. He's from India. 
He's got a master's degree. He's a very bright, very thoughtful, very earnest young man. And he was coming to me for advice. But by the time he got to my office, he'd already made the decision. Yeah, I've been here four and a half years, but I'm not sure I, I need to be here any longer. What what was sold to me and what I, I got when I got here are two very different things. And, and that worries me because those are the people that not only do we want to attract, we did a good job of attracting them, but we didn't retain them. And that's just one anecdote. There are dozens and dozens that I have because I spend quite a bit of time with people in their 20s and their 30s uh, for various reasons. And it, it's it's a little bit disheartening that we've kind of you know gone sideways here because we were the it country for a while. Toronto was the it city. Right from 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. I mean, they were writing about Queen Street West as the best city in the world and Toronto is the best city in the world. And, and now they're like, yeah, you know, it's sucking the soul out of me. Uh, you know, Tom Cruise coming out and saying, you know, I, I'm shooting a movie here. I don't even want to be here because the traffic is so bad because there's bike lanes everywhere. And, you know, they, they keep the construction equipment on the roads all night instead of opening the roads up. You can't get around. Like those types of things are, are very challenging, I think, in the aggregate, because Canada was the it country, Toronto was the it city, and we're no longer there. We need to get back to that. And I do think that we can, but it's going to take that kind of committed, strategic, visionary leadership at all levels of government, but also in society, in the community. Because again, when you keep taxing the crap out of people and making it difficult, they become less philanthropic and they become less oriented towards risk and venture investing. I was going to say, um, they become more risk averse. Having lived overseas in, in Singapore and Hong Kong, I, I think I have a, a different appreciation for risk and, and how Canadians are viewed and, and how they actually view investment. And I think a big issue of that is that um, we are taxed. And so that creates the risk aversion. So Joe, you, you wouldn't be alone on this. I want to I want to switch gears and talk about AI because you, you talked about this a little bit. Everyone is talking about AI. What What excites you about AI and how it can change the financial landscape? And what worries you? Well, what excites me is it's a game changer, unlike anything we've seen in decades. And quite frankly, I would argue in our in, in generational lifetimes, this is it. And when you layer on what's coming after, uh, which is quantum, the combination of quantum and AI really um, changes everything and accelerates how we live our lives and how we um, solve for problems, how we find cures for disease. Everything changes because our access to information, our ability to uh, succeed and fail happens at a breakneck, uh, breakneck pace. So I'm excited because we're going to, you know, everything from, you know, Neuralink implantable chips to access to information on our devices, on our glasses. You know, one of the companies I had invested in a number of years ago got bought out by Google and is going to be incorporated into Google's technology around Google Glass. That information is now going to be available everywhere. It's going to be ubiquitous and it's going to make us smarter. It's going to make us more efficient. It's going to make us just better decision makers and have access to information that otherwise might be a, might have been harder. I mean, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, we were, you know, looking up information on 
Encyclopedia Britannica. And then in the 90s, 2000s, it was Google. And and so this is all going to be ubiquitous. It's going to be available to us in a nanosecond. So that's what I'm excited about. What am I worried about? I'm worried that not so much that the the AI or the tech is going to take over the world because it's going to think uh, faster and and solve more complex problems um, and and be empowered to do so. That that is a problem for sure. But it's more. I, I guess I worry that in an uncontrolled environment where you've got massive uh, fraud being committed by. Uh, foreign sovereigns, if you take that technology and use it in the most unlawful, immoral way, that's where I I see huge risk. Um, Do I think the people here in in Canada and North America are going to have that as a primary mandate? No. Do I worry about that other hands around the world, that, that really does make me nervous. I'm trying to be politically correct here. So yeah, I, 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 there, and you're not going to put safeguards on it, right? You can put safeguards all you want here in Canada. It's going to be like, yeah, okay, great. Who cares? We'll just move to another country. And you're not going to just do it in the United States. It, how do you do this? How do you solve for that globally? And because that's really where the safeguards need to be. And, and how do you put those in place? And nobody's been able to solve for that. And if they were to put too many safeguards in place, for instance, in the United States, that might just thwart some of their creativity and innovation. So that worries me about that. So it's it's complex. And I've, I've just finished Mustafa Suleiman's book, uh, The Coming Wave, which is awesome. Um, I've been you know reading up and, 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 and trying to really listen to the Yuval's and, and Jeffrey Hinton's and whatnot to see where the risks are. Um, and, and everything that they talk about, everything that they've identified are, are truly pro- possible risks. But I, I think the good outweighs the bad, as it has with most technological innovation. And so do I think that we're going to benefit from AI? 100%. Do I think it's going to make life better, more efficient, more effective? Are we going to be better educated? Yeah, all of the above. Are we going to become better parents because we have access to better teaching methodologies and, and how we can do a better job with our children? I, I do. There's so much good that's going to come from it. But yeah, that, that small subset that could take and manipulate that technology or the data within that technology, that makes me nervous. Yeah, and you and you wouldn't be alone. I mean, we see this all the time, right? With um, with even social media or you know crypto, and I think the regulation, uh, the regulators, I think have a, it's it's going to be difficult for them um, because, like you said, it's a balance. It's a balance between protection and uh, not stifling innovation, it, right? As because you mentioned, otherwise it's the tail wagging the dog, and yeah. we can't afford that. This is this innovation, this change is so good that you can't take the possible outlier event or that tail and say, okay, that's what we've got to solve for. We want to solve for all of it. And we need to make balanced decisions, exactly what you just said, so that we embrace all that's great about that technology and that the huge benefits to society and, and also manage for 
what the possible risks and downsides are. Well, and I'll tell you, it'll be interesting having been in the media for a long time because the media tends to focus on a lot of the negatives and, and less so on the positive. So let's hope that we see some balance in, in that space as well. I want to circle back to the asset management um, space because this is where you spent most of your career. And I should mention in, in 1994, you launched DT, GT Global. Um, that became one of the fastest growing mutual funds. You sold that. You started Synergy and subsequently sold that one as well. Are you still advising people in this space, firms in this space? And and what are you watching for? I'm not specifically advising, uh, but yes, people occasionally will come to me and ask my opinion on the direction of the industry or new tools and new methodologies or diversification. Um, so I, I think I think where I I might add a little bit of value in asset management is trying to think of ways that you can bring tools and other asset classes into a portfolio that aren't readily accessible today. So I have spent some time not only on VC but also on private equity and and different funds in that spectrum that aren't readily available to the average retail investor. And I've, I've actually been looking at a couple companies in particular that are creating new ways to package up complex investment solutions that aren't readily available to retail and package them in a way that there is access, there is liquidity, that the pricing is competitive so that they have that ability to diversify in their portfolio. Do I see it as helpful? Absolutely. Do I see it as a a game changer down the road? You don't need it, but it's really, it's a nice piece to have. And it's such a complex, both private equity and venture capital are complex parts of the marketplace. So if you can have access to that with really great leadership and great management, not a bad way to diversify your portfolio and get outsized returns because the returns in in private small cap, very big if you do it right. In venture capital, same. Private equity, same. So having access to outsized returns and diversifying away the risk from the capital markets uh, the, the the more um, market-based capital markets, it, I think makes a lot of sense. So um, I, I do talk to people about that. Well, I'll tell you what interests me is, um, you know, again, being in the financial education space, I am seeing a lot more. And I, I specifically focus uh, on, on women, Joe, but it, it's exciting to me to see that there is a lot more interest in in investing and that innovation has, I think, leveled the, the playing field. It's given people access to be able to invest in a simpler way that that didn't exist, I think, when I when I certainly started in the industry. What does worry me, though, and I have to say is is just the education piece and the lack of education piece, right? Like a lot of people are, are jumping in sometimes and, and not understanding what's happening. They want the quick fix. You know, I, I look back at Robin Hood um, and, you know, in some of the disasters <laughs> that, that came out of that. So I, I think it's going to be a, a very interesting space. And I, and I I guess from a personal point of view, I certainly do hope that financial education is the key part of, of that innovation. There, there are great books and great podcasts like this out there that are available to people. And 
you know, one of the things that you could do if let's say you didn't have the time to read John Bogle's little book of common sense investing or Charlie Munger's book, or I mentioned David Chilton earlier. You know, one of the things you can do is you can go on to ChatGPT and say, what are the 10 most important lessons from the little book of common sense investing or the wealthy barber? So again, here's where AI really lends a huge hand to the average investor. You can have access to all that information without reading the 200 to 500 pages or The Richest Man in Babylon. There's so many great books out there that people just haven't got the time because they're so busy being busy, you know, running their lives, you know, work and family and children and sports and arts. So accessing the, the um, artificial intelligence to give you that information and finding an advisor who you really like, that you trust, that you respect, that you know has your best interests at heart, that combination is so helpful to making Canadian uh, investors um, wealthier longer term. And that was always the thing for me. As a kid who had immigrant parents, who grew up with nothing, it always inspired me, excited me to think that I could build companies that were going to create wealth and prosperity for Canadian families. Because if if I did that well, if I made people wealthier, then because, you know, I know this sounds almost outrageous, but one of the statistics that really upset me when I was younger is 70% of marriages would break up because of financial problems. And I thought if we could provide solutions that make it easier and access is better and you can get the cost down and the access to the education and information is readily available, then people would have the tools to do a much better job in creating that wealth and, and go up Maslow's hierarchy of needs to the point where their, their kids are going to be well-educated. They're going to take better vacations. They're going to start giving back into the community, all the benefits. And those families would stay together because they wouldn't have that, that disruption that was caused by uh, lack or financial difficulty. So I, I altruistically thought when I was younger that I was able to create that opportunity or that change for the world. And I felt it was kind of a purpose. And every single one of those companies that you mentioned and others, that was always our mission. My leadership team is, can, are we and can we create wealth and prosperity for families across our country? And if we can do that, we can do it competitively and do it well, are we changing the world in our own little way? And that was always my mission because I always felt that if I got that right, Canada would be a better country. It would be a more successful country, be a more prosperous country. Oh, Joe, you are <laughs> you are speaking my language. And it's it's exactly why I decided to start this business, you know, around financial education, because um, we can't have economic prosperity when half our citizens are not prosperous. Like that that's the reality of it, right? Um, Joe, I really appreciate your time today and your insights. Thank you so much for, for coming on. Now, before I let you go, I like to end the show by asking my guests three rapid fire questions about money. It's a little personal. Well, not too personal, but it, it does, I find it humanizes finance. So are you ready to play? Okay, let's do it. Okay. What is the best financial advice you've ever received? Pay yourself first. Every single paycheck that I ever got from being a young person in my teens to 20s to 30s, I took 
as much as I possibly could, and I invested in in our funds. In, in the case of Fidelity or GT or Synergy or CI, I did it there. You could just as easily do it into Simple. You could do it into ETFs, wherever you choose to do it. Um, so I always, always, always paid myself first. And that gave me, for a kid who started with nothing, lots of capital to start another company, Synergy as an example, um, or buy my first house with cash because I was constantly investing and, and, and letting it compound. And my children do that. And every young person that comes into my office to talk about their future. So it was imparted to me. I imparted to others. Yeah, it's the one that I follow. It's the absolute golden rule. So that's a good one. Um, what is the worst financial advice you've ever received? Oh, buy gold. I mean, <laughs> somebody really? told me to go buy gold bars and stuff when I was younger and <laughs> And I really couldn't afford it. And I went and bought silver and I think I still have them. They're not worth much. And, you know, and, and, and you know, just basically buying things that you don't understand. I think that's what it came down to, to be honest. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know why I was buying it, but it was, it was a period where that was the, the common thinking, right? That was the prevailing sentiment. And I did it. And I was, thank goodness I did because you know, I lost money at a very young age when I didn't have much. And what a great lesson, because now I understand everything that I'm putting my time and energy and money into. That's a good one. Okay, last one. If you could enact one policy that could help Canadians with their financial well-being, what would it be? Allow people to invest and make all of their returns tax-free and if I couldn't get that done as the finance minister, I would encourage a tax structure that if you sell a company, so if you owned shares in CI Financial and you bought them at $10, you sold them at $20, you decided that you wanted to use that money to start to invest again, either in a public equity, private equity, or a startup, that that would be done and you wouldn't have to pay capital gains tax because what you're doing is you're hoarding that virtuous cycle of investment back into our own country. I think some methodology like that would support the entrepreneurial ecosystem, would support Canadian private enterprise, and it would support private Canadian companies, or sorry, publicly uh, traded Canadian companies. I, I think something like that could be very powerful, but it, 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 I, I won't explain why I think it's not being done. I think it would be very helpful to our country. I, I can say, I, I think I love the idea. I lived in Singapore and Hong Kong and that's exactly, they don't tax <laughs> personal, you know, and investment income. But I, you know, I, I think, um, I think sometimes we're too short-sighted here, but uh, I'll leave it at that. And I appreciate your advice and, and your insights again, um, Joe, thanks again for coming on. Entirely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And and I hope that some of this message is is helpful to all the folks that choose to tune in. And uh, I, again, I'm, I know it will entirely be entirely honored and, and grateful that you took the time to uh, spend with me. Yeah, well, I am too. I'm honored that you you took the time for coming on. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Well, thanks for watching this show. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button on YouTube or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Your support means the world to me. We'll see you back here next week. Until then, stay well, stay wise, and stay wealthy.